Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelins and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm so fired up tonight because not only do I have my co-host and Hall of Famer and recent birthday boy, Steve Flink, with me on tonight, but we are also joined by one of our favorite commentators. He's on the Tennis Channel. It is an absolute privilege for me to have this guest on with us tonight. Please welcome to the pod, Steve Weissman. Steve, thank you for uh, joining Steve Flink and myself. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to join the legend, as I call him, Steve Flink, uh, and you. Thanks for asking me to, to come on and uh, looking forward to it. Hey, we, we love the work that you do. And I know, you know, if you go back to the history of when my podcast really started, I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of college coaches um, as guests. And I know you you felt so highly of what was going down, the level of play down in Lake Nona during the NCAA championships. I mean, such poise from 18 to 22 year olds on the girls side. It was two freshmen match was tied three, three going for the whole thing. I mean, how impressive was that? No, it's awesome. I'm actually the, the volunteer assistant coach at uh, Loyola Marymount at LMU here in LA. So, uh, you know, I follow college tennis very closely. Um, that, that final, I know Emma because of covering the Charleston event for a while and, and her dad, Ben is, has been fantastic for the Volvo car open. And um, so, you know, I've, I've gotten to, to, to get to know Emma a little bit. She's awesome. And I know Stella because I covered her win when she won uh, the Malibu masters, uh, the Oracle masters at, at the Malibu racket club a few years ago and uh, have stayed friends with her. So, um, you know, it, it was cool to see them both play. And obviously Stella had beaten her earlier in the year. That was Emma's only loss. And then for Emma's a freshman to, be able to win the title is uh, is pretty special. So, I mean, the level of play, college tennis, I'm a huge proponent of college tennis, both on, on the men's and the women's side. And as we've seen, you know, at the pros, it's a great springboard to, to success. I mean, what Jen Brady's doing right now is amazing. And obviously she played three singles at UCLA. I mean, she wasn't mm-hmm. even the top player and now she's, you know, uh, top 15 in the world. So, uh, well, thank it's you. Pretty cool. Thank you for using your platform to to not only speak so highly of it and promote college tennis, because like you said, the level is so good and it's so much fun. Um, before we dive into your background and a little bit of your career journey, I know we're going to talk Wimbledon later on in this podcast, but I want to hear your thoughts. Steve and I obviously talked a lot a bit about it, um, but the run by Novak, especially that third set, uh, you know, against Rafa and then obviously has come from behind victory against um Stefano Tsitsipas, that was, that was remarkable. Yeah, I mean, you know, beating Rafa was the big deal. That third set, um, arguably the greatest set ever. I, I mean, it was, that level was, was insane. I mean, I, I've gotten to, to see some good tennis, but that was, that was next level. I mean, there, you, it took like the fifth winner of a point to actually decide it. I mean, it was video game stuff. I had never seen anything like it. And for him to beat Rafa on that court – in that venue, you know, where he's won 13 times. I mean, listen, it had only been tw- done twice before. He, he was one of the guys that had done it. And for him to do it, you know, two times, um, <laughs> we always talk about the GOAT conversation. And I, I don't think it should be decided until everybody's done playing. Um, but that <laughs> that's a big, big box to check off there for Djokovic. And to be the only guy in the open era now, to win twice at every single major. I mean, that, that's massive to me. Uh, the fact that, that Roger and Rafa have not done that. And um, so to get past 
Rafa and then, you know, do what he did against Sitsipas, you know, come back from two sets down where it never felt like he was out of it. Um, you know, he's that guy that I always say, I mean, three out of five is just a different ball game. I mean, three out of five against Rafa and Clay is the toughest still, even though Djokovic beat him, in my opinion, it's still the toughest thing to do in all of sports. Uh, it's now only been done uh, a few times, but um, for him to, you know, beat Tsitsipas, you know, that's what he does. He just wears you out both physically and mentally. And that's what makes him the favorite heading into Wimbledon. And, and that's why people are talking about a grand slam and a golden slam. Um, it's not going to be easy at all, but he's certainly the favorite at all those events. And, you know, it, it starts on Monday. Yeah. I'll let, I'll let Steve Flink add a couple of thoughts in there. You know, we, we differentiated between maybe the Djokovic Rafa match was not nearly one of the greatest matches they've played, but totally. that third set was fantastic. Right, Steve. I mean, the best, yeah. best maybe set you've ever seen. Yeah, totally agree with Steve's assessment of the third set. But I, I do believe, Steve, that what happened was we all were so caught up in the glow of that third set because it was the centerpiece of the match and it took 91 minutes and it was really what decided the outcome of the match in the end that we look, I look back on and say, okay, fantastic set, best set they've ever played against each other for sure. But uh, you know, the first set was they were both a little tight, I thought, and five love lead for Rafa and back comes Novak to make a goal, which I thought was important again in the deciding the outcome was that he, he made the first set tight. Then a good second set, a spectacular third, and then Rafa did fade a bit in the fourth while Djokovic was magnificent. So all in all, a very good match, even a great match, but just measured to me up against their other epics like Australia 2012, five hours and 53-minute final and the Wimbledon semi of 18 and the French semi of 13. They've just had so many gems that, to me, from beginning to end, were better than this. But there's not been anything. Uh, that's where I'm completely in, in accord with Steve W. is that nothing to equal that third set, which we'll, I think they'll both remember for the rest of their lives. And then yeah. good, point, good point by Steve about it is the first time in the open era because Labor did it twice, but... You know, his one of those was in the amateurs in 62. The second was in 69 as a pro, second year of open tennis. And I, I think that the other thing that Djokovic did that was hadn't been done since 49 was to come back from two sets to love down twice to win a major. The last one who'd done it was Ted Schroeder at Wimbledon in 49. So all of these things, <laughs> now, he, he will tell his grandchildren about this someday. Uh, because I think he does, Steve, I think you probably agree with me. I think he does have a good, clear sense of history no yeah i mean he 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 certainly does and i totally agree with you it was not the greatest match of all time or anything close to that it, it was just that set and the right. moment and and you know being able to get past him but um no i mean I, he wants to end with the most grand slam titles he wants to end with all the records and right now i mean head to head he leads rafa head to head he leads roger he's I one away from from tying in terms of grand slams he's got those nuggets in terms of the only guy who's won all the masters 1000s a couple of times all the grand slams a couple of times the most masters 1000s um there's not a lot that he doesn't have um so you know the olympics will be important for him as well i think that means a lot uh to play for his country i mean i, I think back in rio um you know five years ago now i, I was able to call those matches and 
that was devastating to him. I mean, he was in tears on the court. I'll never forget Marcus. that. I'll never forget seeing him walk off the court after the loss to Delpo. And you absolutely could not fight the tears back because, I mean, he had won the first two majors of the year. Granted, he had lost at Wimbledon by then to Query, but he was still, I think, confident going into the Olympics. And that was what he felt was a golden opportunity loss and a very tough draw against Delpo. But you're right. And, and, that's going to be one of the interesting things, Steve, about this coming summer is if Djokovic does win Wimbledon and has the third straight major, does he then still go to the Olympics knowing that could jeopardize, you know, that his chances of winning in New York? He wants that gold medal so badly, but does he want it more than he wants the, the Grand Slam? Or, uh, I mean, would he forego the Golden Slam to get the Grand Slam? That's what I'm wondering. I think he would. I don't think he will not go to the Olympics. So if you just laid it out in terms of if I'll give you a grand slam right now, but no golden slam, he would take the grand slam. Right. I mean, no, that, that hasn't been done since, since Steffi. Um, that said with the opportunity and being healthy, I don't think he'll, he would not go to the Olympics just to, to play the U S open. So I, I think, I think he'll do it all. I do think it's going to be a discussion in his camp, Steve. I, I see your point of view and I understand it, but I think that the, people around him like Vida and Ivanisevic and his parents, whoever's opinions he values highly will weigh in and, and want him to think about mm. not going to Olympus because ultimately is that going to mean as it'll mean a lot to him personally, if he can get the gold medal, but if it, it if it, it's such a tough physical challenge and he is trying to pick his spots more, it'll, it's going to, it's not going to be an easy decision by any means. No, you're right. The thing I mean, is, I'll change if he doesn't win Wimbledon too. That will throw a yeah, whole. Other of course, if he doesn't win Wimbledon, then I think he 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 just goes. Period. No, no, no choice. But but I, I'm putting this on the basis of, of winning Wimbledon. But Steve, you were going to say something. Sorry. Well, I mean, he, he's won the U.S. Open multiple times, so that that is something that he has. Obviously, the Grand Slam is the Grand Slam, but um, he but he doesn't have the Olympics. So in terms of goat conversations, he doesn't need to win a Grand Slam. To, to be the GOAT over Roger and Rafa, in my opinion, if he has all the other accolades and more majors and more everything else and the head-to-head. Because neither of them won a Grand Slam, right? So, we're, we're, I mean, we're talking a long time ago since that's happened. Um, he had a gold medal. Now, now he's literally done everything. Plus, he, in my opinion, if he stays healthy, will add more majors, you know. Um, it's all crazy. It's all <laughs> We're all privileged to Here's the thing. If he were to win Wimbledon, that's, uh, you know, he didn't get there in 16 when he had the first two. He does it this time. It's like he surely knows at 34, he's not going to get that opportunity. That's not coming back again. That chance to go to New York and win the Grand Slam. So I think all of you don't think? Things, you no, don't think next year? No, I mean, I think he's going to do great next year, but I don't think he can he can expect to be winning the first three of the season. You know, I, I, I I don't, I, I think that's unlikely uh, as great as he is. I and mean, he gets two maybe, but I, I just think that his, uh, all of these things will be swirling around his mind. It's a nice problem to have, right, Steve? <laughs> totally. <laughs> We're just so privileged to see it all. Um, before we get into a little bit more about Wimbledon and what we'll consider some you know quick hitter type questions for both of you, I want to, you know, with Steve, uh, Steve Weissman as our guest, I want to Talk to you, ask you how it all started. We know about your work at ESPN, Tennis, NFL Live, but if you can kind of take us back, um, how'd you get into the, the love of sports? And I know you, uh, 
you went to Northwestern, which is what, 20, 25 miles away from where I currently reside. And I know how much you, you love the, the cats, as you always say on Twitter. Right. Go so cats. <laughs> bring, bring us back to, to where it all started, I guess. Well, it all started in, uh, in Washington, D.C., Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, that's where I grew up. And uh, my mom will say I, I learned how to read by reading the, the sports page of the Washington Post. So I grew up reading Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser before they were you know, TV stars. They were the, the columnists um, at the Washington Post. And I would read the sports section front to back and knew every single statistic. And, um, and then I started playing basketball, uh, I think when I was five or six, and then started playing tennis when I was seven or eight. Um, and those, those were my main sports, I also played soccer. I played golf. Um, my, my mom would not let me play football or hockey. Um, so, but, but football was always probably my favorite sport. I mean, at the time they were the Washington Redskins. Now they're the Washington football team, but they were my, you know, my favorite team by far. I remember the first game I went to at RFK stadium. Um, and I grew up, you know, going to, to tennis camp every summer at the Aspen Hill club, um, in right outside Silver Spring. And that's where I, I trained year round. And we would go to what was the Leg Mason Tennis Classic, which is now the, the, the city open. And I remember getting my first autograph from Andre Agassi, um, waiting outside a practice court. And, you know, he, he signed the, the ticket stub and I still have that. And uh, I, I watched him. I watched the, the Jensen brothers. I watched, you know, Michael Chang and Peter Corda and Jim Curry here and, uh, Pete Sampras and, you know, all those guys, Brad Gilbert, when he played, you know, in DC back in the day. Um, and that was like a thrill every summer to, to go to that event and, and get to see those, you know, players up close and personal. And for me, especially Agassi, because, you know, he, he's my all time, you know, favorite from when I was little. And well, you know, guess, I guess, who <laughs> guess who loves hearing that? <laughs> Yeah, for those listeners, Steve and I had a great, great discussion about Pete and Andre, and it was you guys should all go listen to the episode. It was it was a little bit longer than usual, but it was such a fun episode for both Steve Flink and myself to do. As you all know, Steve Flink, his most recent project is his new book, Greatness Revisited. Pete Sampras, um, it's Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. Um, great, great book. So definitely go check it out. But yeah, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you set it up too perfectly, Steve. No, I mean, and Pete's great. And obviously Paul Anacone is a, is a dear, dear friend of mine. It's become like family and, you know, but I can't, you know, I can't lie growing up. I literally wrote a paper, Steve, in, I think it was uh, 11th grade AP English. And it was, it was something about the baseliner versus the servant volleyer. And it was basically Agassiz Sampras. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, more of, of Andre's stature and my game is more like Andre's and that's how I saw myself. And so, and it, it, the paper got an A, thank you, Victor Carasio. <laughs> For and, you. Uh, <laughs> and like, that was, you know, the, his whole, you know, image is everything and the hair and the clothes and, and the shoes and just, uh, you know, uh, Andre was everything to me, still is. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah that, that's echo terrific. your thoughts, sir. Echo your thoughts. Um, it, it would have been disappointing not to get an A because you obviously were pretty passionate about the topic. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what made you come, what made you other than obviously it's a great, great school was, was Northwestern on, on one of your wish lists growing up or you just, when you were applying, you knew this was one of them you wanted to go to Chicago, maybe. 
No, none of that, actually. Stanford was my first choice, honestly, because growing up, they always had the, the winning national championship tennis teams. Um, and so I was like, oh, like that's where I got to go. At some point, realized I'm not good enough to play at Stanford. Uh, but then I was like, I think I'm smart enough. I mean, like I get really good grades, you know, all that stuff. Turns out I wasn't um, or whatever. You know, it's very hard to get in there. I did not get in there. Um, and... You know, Northwestern was just, uh, I, I applied to like nine schools and Northwestern was one of them and everything happens for a reason. And I honestly didn't apply my, my first choice, like Stanford does not have a journalism program. I think they have a communications department and some of the other schools that, that were high on my list, I would have been like an econ major. I don't, I don't think they had communication schools. So that was never a thing for me. I was never like, which of these, you know, Missouri or Northwestern or USC or Syracuse or any of those that, that I didn't care about that. So, but everything happens for a reason. I go to uh, Northwestern to just check out the campus uh, before committing. And I had applied to the school of speech because they have a major called RTVF radio TV film. And I've known since I was in third grade, I wanted to be a television sports broadcaster. And I was like, well, that, that seems like the major I would take. When I got there, I realized RTVF is all F. It's like all film. If you want to be, you know, great filmmakers have, have gone through that school. Um, so I transferred into Medill, the journalism school, the summer before my freshman year, because I realized when I was on campus that, that the journalism school, broadcast journalism, is actually the major uh, that would help me in what I wanted to do. And there was a, a quarter where you would go away to a TV station if you were in TV, a magazine if you were in magazine, a newspaper if you were in newspaper, um, and work for a quarter, literally at a, at a real TV station. I was like, that, that's perfect. So um, that's kind of how I, you know, ended up going there. And then for me, doing, uh, I joined the radio station when I was a freshman. And I knew that when I was a senior, I wanted to be sports director of, of the radio, WNUR, WNUR Sports. And because they covered every single basketball game, home and away, every single football game, home and away way we had sponsored deal like we would get our own advertising united airlines would you know give us x amount of flights and through uh the athletic department they would give us a room wherever they were staying and um and, and we had other donors that you know would help us we we literally had better gear than wgn you know we'd be <laughs> on the road with dave ennett who's still he, he's the man he's the voice of the wildcats and um and they it would be using like a phone line. We were using an ISDN line. And, um, but that, that was, you know, the biggest experience for me was, you know, being able to, to do play by play and travel with the women's basketball team and, and the football team and the men's basketball team and call all those, all those games. And I mean, those are some of my favorite memories from, from college being like in 2000, when Northwestern um, won the, we were co-big 10 champs and we, we played uh, Wisconsin at Camp Randall and the game went to double overtime and we won. Like I, I called that when we beat Michigan 54, 51 and it was, you know, Zach Kustak and Sam Simmons. And um, it was just a shootout. And like, I did play by play for that, for those games. And then the Alamo bowl that year when we got crushed by Nebraska, but, um, but, but though, you know, that's what, that was the best experience for me. Now they have this insane broadcast building and they do television stuff every night uh at the time it was like once a week it was the nnn the northwestern news network so that's where i got my experience on the radio and then you know i sent out 
back then, your VHS tapes. So you had a, your reel was a VHS tape, and then I'd have a cover letter, and I would go on this website called tvjobs.com, and I would see openings pop up, and I would send a cover letter and a tape, and normally hear nothing. And <laughs> like I, at that at that point, I was just like begging for somebody to be like, "You're horrible! Like, just give me something! Like, give me feedback." <laughs> but nothing, and so then this one station in Alpena, Michigan, which is the third smallest market in the country. So there's 210 television demographic markets in the United States. And the, the last ones are North Platte, Nebraska, Glendive, Montana, and Alpena, Michigan. And so Alpena called me, they were like, you know, we'd like to interview you for our weekend, you know, sports anchor position. And uh, I drove, I rented a car because my car broke down on the way home from Chicago rented a car, stayed with a buddy in Ann Arbor, um, and then, you know, go to Alpena. It's snowing. I mean, it's freezing. There's basically a super Walmart and that's it. And like that's, and then the station is a red pole barn and it was wild. And, uh, and I took that job for $14,000 a year and that, that, you know, the toughest job is always the first one. And, and then I, I got going. That's great. That's but great. So, there's not a lot of, there's not, oh, go ahead, Steve Flink. Sorry. You know, two quick things. One, I want to know when tennis became such a central, because you're talking about all these sports, which obviously made you very versatile and maybe marketable as well. And then, and then the second thing, just a brief comment about when you were reading the Washington Post and reading Kornheiser and and Wilbon, did you read the tennis writer, Barry Lords? Were there any tennis writers that, because Barry Lords was a great tennis writer in that era, uh, mainly, I think, I know Barry was still at the Washington Post in the 70s. He may have gone to San Diego by then, but were you paying attention to the tennis writers as well as just those sports columnists? And then secondly, when did tennis really become uh, so, so uh, uh, such a deep passion for you as it clearly is right now? So I don't remember Barry. He may not have been there um, in the 80s, 90s, um, yeah. you know, when I was like heavily reading the post. But I, re I read the, the sports section from cover to cover. So right. whether it was tennis, football or anything, um, yeah. you know, I, I consumed that information. I remember watching Michael Chang uh, in 89. It's, it's one of my you know, first real vivid memories of him winning the French and doing the underarm serve against Lendl. <laughs> Because yeah. I was literally at summer camp. So I, I was, you know, at Aspen Hill watching all these matches. And so for me, tennis, I was most proficient at tennis. Like at some point I stopped growing basketball, people passed me. But at yeah. tennis, I was still really good. Um, like I played number one singles in high school, my junior and senior year. I went to a, a pretty big public high school. Um, and like I said, I trained year round for that. So I just, I played tennis all the time. I spent my, my days were at, were at the Aspen Hill Club, whether it was playing tennis, whether it was, you know, it was also a, uh, a training center. So I did a lot of, you know, physical stuff there. They also had a basketball court. So a lot of my friends from high school, we would all play pickup hoops there, but I was always there. And, and tennis was, you know, what I loved and what I was really good at. And so, you know, ever since middle school, I would say when I started playing tournaments, um, you know, I remember playing my first futures tournament and then I would play, um, USDA events and, and I was ranked in Maryland, you know, I, listen, I, I was never, like I said, I wasn't good enough to play at Stanford. I, I was not good enough to play at Northwestern. Um, but I, like, 
to this day, I played yesterday. Like I love playing and I'll, I'll hit for three hours rather than run on the treadmill for 20 minutes. A hundred percent. We're going to, we're going to ask how good you are later on too. I have a fun question for you later on, but, but yeah, no, I'm with you too. I, I hate cardio. I can't run on a treadmill, but I could play for three hours. I'd much rather do that. So yeah, but David, you know, I remember talking to Steve. I, 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 I was making one of my appearances on tennis channel being interviewed by him, which is one of the easiest things you could ever do. If you ever want to be interviewed by somebody, let Steve Weissman do it because I don't care how nervous you might be going in. You're not nervous once you, it's one of your great traits, Steve, but uh, very kind. Thank you. Remember we were talking off, 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 off air and you were telling me, and this was early in the pandemic and you were playing on somebody's private court. And yeah. I thought, wow, nothing stopping him. And this was early on uh, David and he was still finding a way to stay safe, but to play tennis. Well, yeah, I, no. we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that later. I don't want to okay. dive too deep into it yet. But um, what one of the, the interesting things I, you know, I want to ask you about Steve Weissman is, you know, you got the NFL live and the tennis coverage. There's not too many guys that do both. Chris Fowler uh, does a great job with college football and then obviously his tennis coverage on ESPN. But the NFL and the tennis, there's not too many guys out there that, that, that do both those sports. How, how did that kind of come about? Well, I mean, obviously, when I was at ES, I was at ESPN for a little over five years, and, and I covered everything there. I mean, my main gig was Sports Center. So when you're on Sports Center, you need to be an expert on everything from NASCAR to the NHL to golf to tennis to football to you know basketball, every single baseball. So because you're doing a segment, you know, with Barry Melrose, and then you're literally shifting to Ricky Craven, then you're shifting to Antonio Davis and Tim Legler, and so I mean, you you must be an expert in everything. Um, now I only need to be an expert in two things. So it, it's, it's honestly a lot easier, but um, you know, I've always loved both sports. Like I said, you know, the Washington football team growing up, like that was, that was my, every Sunday, you know, that was a appointment viewing. Um, I, I, my emotions went up and down based on their wins and losses. And then tennis is just, you know, it's been my life, you know, for, for decades. Um, and so when I left ESPN, um, I actually, Mark Woodford, who you both, you know, know, well, the hall of famer, um, was yeah. one of the first analysts I worked with at ESPN. So when I was at ESPN, I also did, was, um, blessed enough to be able to do the majors for direct TV, like the mosaic coverage. I did the U S open like five times, the Australian open four or five times, Wimbledon three or four times. Uh, we, we did not do Roland Garros. And so, Woody was one of the first analysts. Woody, Chanda Rubin uh, were a couple of the first analysts I ever worked with at ESPN. Uh, Murphy Jensen, Luke Jensen. What years are we, what years were these that you did so those? Starting 2011. Okay. okay. First U.S. Open. Yeah. Um, and so we would call matches together. And um, tennis, I truly believe, is a family. Like, it, it's been so good to me. Everybody that... I've come in contact with, have, you know, has, has played an integral role in, in where I'm at right now. And so when I left ESPN, um, I, you know, Woody and his wife and his two daughters, they're like family. And, and, and you know, they were just here and, and uh, we had dinner in, in L.A. recently. And so he was like, why don't you come? They live in, in Indian Wells. And so he's like, why don't you come stay with us during Indian Wells? I'll get you a gig with BBC Radio. And then you can just, you know, hang out, have like a little, little time off. And so I knew somebody at Tennis Channel that had worked at ESPN. And so I sent an email and I was just like, hey, I'm going to be at Indian Wells if, 
you all have time to meet, you know, obviously I did a lot of tennis at ESPN. That'd be great. And so I got off the plane at LAX, drove to, to the site and um, Bob Wiley, who's, who's now, you know, my boss at Tennis Channel was like, hey, um, I can't meet with you right now, but how about you call the first two days of matches for us? It's like a, a paid audition. I was like, amazing. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up my first match uh, that I called and was, was Marty Fish's comeback against Ryan Harrison. It was the first round. It was, you know, 2015. And I had gotten to know Marty pretty well through you know, good friends from ESPN. And, um, and so I was like, this is amazing. Like I know Marty and, um, and I, I worked with, with Jim Courier and Lindsay Davenport. And obviously I was staying at, at Woody's house. And so one, like that was, you know, so kind of, of him and his family to, to have me there. But two, like when I meet Jim and Lindsay for the first time, they kind of, you know, they're like, oh, you're staying at the Woody's. Like, you must be okay. You know, like, and so it was kind of like that where they, they really, you know, accepted me right away. And then I called the next day, I think Sloan Stevens match. And it turned out that, that they liked what I did. And so, um, and then I was also doing this BBC radio stuff, which was fun. And so it turned into a, a, an intense work week. Uh, which totally fine. And, um, and then Tennis Channel offered me to fly me out to LA to, to do the Miami Open, which was coming up later. And I did that. And so there was no contract at that point. It was just, you know, they, they like working with me and, and I liked working with them. And so they would fly me out for, for events. And so in the middle of all that, I got an audition at NFL Network, uh, April 7th, 2015, flew out to LA, did the audition, and then they hired me to host uh, their morning show starting in July of 2015. So basically, they put me up at a hotel, the Marriott and Marina Del Rey, from July of 2015 until October of 2015. I was hosting their morning show Monday through Friday. It's called NFL HQ. Um, awesome show. Worked with LeVar Arrington, Aaron Coscarelli, Daniel Jeremiah, um, Michael Fabiano, Elliot Harrison, um, Rand Getlin. It, it was, it was an awesome crew. And so I would get up at midnight, go to work at 1am, you know, do this morning show. And then I left because tennis channel wanted me to do the city open that year. And I was like, that's amazing. Like to be able to come home and broadcast, you know, my home event, the yeah. one I grew up Your going to tournament. Agassi. Um, and th that, that was one of the greatest thrills. And so I did that for a week, flew back to LA, back to the morning show, then I left to do the U.S. Open, actually for ESPN, because those like Don Colantonio is another guy who who led that like basically the DirecTV stuff and gave me my my first opportunity in, in national tennis. And so I, I owe uh, DC a lot. But um, and then I you know I came back to do the NFL stuff. And then at some point I was still living in Connecticut. Um, but there was nothing for me in Connecticut. And so that, you know, all of my gigs were, were in LA. And so I made the decision uh, to move myself to LA. And I was like, whatever happens, if I'm just on the beach for two, two months doing nothing, I'm just gonna be happy. I, I, I truly love LA, I love the beach. The South Bay is where I live and um, it's paradise to me. I, I watch the sunset over the Pacific ocean every night and it never gets old. Like I've been here over five years. It, it doesn't get old. Um, and so I, I didn't have any contracts or anything, but I knew that there, there's probably going to be some work. Um, 
So the, the day I got back here, I moved here December 10th, 2015. NFL Network was like, oh, he's, he's actually living here. We'll, we'll give him work. And so December 11th, I was back at NFL Network. Uh, and I've been there ever since. Uh, and, you know, I've gotten opportunities to do NFL Now. And to- I've done a lot of Total Access recently. And um, NFL Game Day Live during the season. And um, it's been a blast. And, and, and I, I love working with, with that group. And then Tennis Channel, you know, uh, signed me to a contract. And, and now we've, you know, had multiple deals since then. And, and it's just kind of grown. And, and, it, and like I said, they're, they're a family. And, and, you know, from the top down, from Ken Solomon to Bob Wiley and Ross Schneiderman. And um, it's just, they're awesome. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's such a pleasure to, to, you know, it's called work, but like, Lindsay and Jim and Paul and, and, you know, everybody I work with are, you know, I had Thanksgiving at the Anacones a couple of years ago and um, stayed with Lindsay and her family in Hawaii. And um, it, it's just, it's such a pleasure to, you know, kind of do what I love with people that I love. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm very grateful for the position that, that I'm in right now because I'm, I'm really, uh, really blessed to be doing this stuff. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, no. And you, and you can tell you don't take it for granted. You're extremely grateful for what you have. And it's, it's so cool to see because you're doing great work on both fronts. So keep it up. And I know we all love watching what you're doing. Um, I want to be respectful for both of your time. I got a bazillion quick hitters we could do. We're not going to do them all. I'm just going to kind of mix them around. So um, we did this, Steve Flink and myself did this with Mary Carrillo a few, uh, a couple months ago and it, we had a blast doing it. So I'm sure it'll be the same thing here. So let me start. This question is only for Steve Weissman. Okay. Can I give you one? I got, I got one more anecdote. I apologize for cutting you off because that's rude, but you bring oh, up. That's Mary okay. Carrillo. They want to hear so, from you. <laughs> so that, that first Indian Wells, uh, in 2015, I wrote out, I, I, I love to write and that's a big, you know, part of broadcasting um like we write our own stuff i think people think sometimes that somebody else is out there writing like every if you watch roland garros and, and i came on every day and there was like 20 seconds of paris my biggest challenge was to talk about paris in 16 different new and interesting ways and but i love that like i truly enjoy the writing aspect so that first match that i called um marty fish's match against ryan harrison i wrote this i don't know 30 second intro about him coming back. And at the conclusion, Mary Carrillo is in the broadcast, but she's not calling that match, but she's in there. She comes over. I, I don't even know if I had met her yet, but like Mary, you know, kind of like you, Steve, like she's a, she's a legend. Like, and so she comes over and she kisses the top of my head. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, that's like, you know, like hosting Sports Center with Stuart Scott. We'll never forget it. Like one of the coolest things of all time. But like Mary Carrillo accepting me and giving me that, it was like, you know, like it was like her approval or more than approval. Like I was like, oh my, like I got like goosebumps even like right now talking about it um, because I, I, you know, so friendly for so Mary friendly. and, and think she's so amazing. Friendly. So, but anyway, that was just a little anecdote. No, that's well, okay. So I have to say, I'm not, not surprised by that anecdote, knowing, knowing her as long as I have, it goes back really to 77 and, seeing her win that French. Yeah. I didn't hear, I did not see her win that French open mix, but I saw her at Wimbledon that year. So I've known her really since that year and known her well since the early eighties. And that's very typical of her spirit and generosity that she would greet you that way. And to- totally genuine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's, she's the reason I mean, 
probably the biggest reason why I was able to do the Olympics in 2016, you know, cause she was like, you should hire Steve, you know, and like, she carries that weight. So I, you know, super grateful to, to now be friends with Mary as well. No, she's and so friendly. And I was so fortunate. I was so happy to, to, you know, have her on with Steve a couple months ago. We had so much fun and she's hilarious. Like, said, like also like so genuine, I'm like laughing the entire time I'm ever with Mary. That's like, what I said in the end of the pod, right? <laughs> I, said, I don't think I stopped smiling or laughing for the 50 minutes that we did it. Um, Incredible personality. Yeah, she is. Um, okay. Here's the question I wanted to ask. And I've heard you talk about it with Mark Lucero, who's also been a guest on our pod, but yep. then best of, of the non-pros at the Tennis Channel on air. And I've heard you you hit with, I believe it was Shonda Rubin, I believe. The best non-pros at Tennis Channel. Are you, you take the cake? Are you the best one on there by far? No, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, Ch- Chanda, by the way, I've hit with a couple times recently. And I mean, she's, you know, former number six in the world, Grand Slam right. champion. Um, I've hit with Lindsay, Tracy. I mean, that, those that's, are pros, though. You're, that's you're the coolest thing for me. And and all all fair. I do want like a lot of tennis channel is people that love and are passionate about tennis. I mean, Kale Hammond, who does a lot of our betting stuff, he played tennis at Duke. Mimi Fotopoulos, who if you need anything done at Tennis Channel, she gets it done. Uh, she played tennis at Oklahoma. Uh, Natalia Munoz, who just started as a PA, she played tennis at Long Beach State. So also a guest on the pod. She's great. She's good. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so yes, yeah, so, I mean like the people that work at tennis channel loved, I mean, Jimmy Connor's son, Brett, you know, is, is one of our guys like that it has worked there ever since I've been there. And I think he's actually really, I know he's great at golf and he loves playing golf, but I'm pretty sure he's good at tennis as well. Um, I've only of, of on-air people that, that aren't pros. I think the only one that I've hit with is Ari Wolf. Um, and he's very good. Um, but I can't, I, I've heard that Russ is pretty good. Um, and that's, yeah. All right, Steve Flink, we're not, we're not putting, we're not, we're not no. banking the title on him. <laughs> Did, no, didn't we not get the answer without getting the answer just, just now? I, I think we're just hearing some Steve Weissman modesty because he was, <laughs> He was very nice to everybody else and very understated about his own talent. But I think having heard the background of it a few minutes ago, we, we can safely say that Steve might stand out in that category. <laughs> I mean, I, I've always talked with Tracy about having some sort of, of tournament, you know, during the off, like in December or something like that. Um, and, and having everybody kind of play like a, you know, king of the court doubles sort of situation. Um, That'd be fun. A non-pro with a pro. Pair a non-pro with a pro. Exactly. Exactly. I, that would be a blast. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Um, I'll leave this to both of you. Steve Flink, we'll, we'll start with, with you. First thing that comes to mind. Um, Rogers' chances at Wimbledon. Serena's chances at Wimbledon. Well, I, it's funny. I've seen a couple of the people on, on, on websites. Then Steve Tigner, who I greatly respect. Uh, picked Roger to win. A few people have. I, I think it's a long shot. I think that he hasn't shown us that much so far this year. On the other hand, you have this incre- incredible collection of historical greatness uh, on those grounds from Rogers. So the question is, does he, uh, having played four tournaments this year, and uh, uh, d- does he then suddenly find the magic the first week that carries him into the second week that makes him dangerous? I, I think the likelihood is he goes to the 16 or quarters i i'd be really surprised if he won this tournament if he does it's, it would probably be the single greatest accomplishment of his career given that he's on the edge of being 40 and given that he's come off these two, two knee surgeries last year and was gone for over a year 
So I, I think it's fascinating. Serena, I would say much better chance, much better chance. I still don't pick her to win the tournament, but on the other hand, I, you know, having been, I, I've, I've, I've seen some signs despite what happened in Roland Garros. So I kind of feel like there's an outside shot for Serena, which is greater than Rogers. What do you think, Steve? I, you know, you make great points, and I, I do agree that this would probably be the greatest accomplishment of Federer's career. If he's able to do this now after the, the knee surgeries, where he's at, the lack of play. Um, I, the thing with me and, and, and goats and greatness, I never bet against them, right? Because the reason that they are among the greatest of all time is because they can accomplish things that mere mortals cannot. So if Federer won, if Serena won, it would not surprise me. It would not surprise me if they didn't win as well. Um, but I, I would never say that arguably the two of the greatest players in the history of the planet won't win because why not? I mean, like that, that's why they're great because they do things that we don't expect them to do. When Roger came back, in 2017, nobody expected anything from him. What does he do? He wins the Australian Open in Wimbledon. Yeah, no, that so, was great. that was great, and and I no doubt that now that in that case he also came up in knee surgery, gone yeah. six. I think what maybe helped there though was that everybody else had their little off season leading into the Australian. Left some of the, and it, it. It's always a little hard to get going at the start of the year, and Roger survived a couple of tough five setters with Nishikori and Babrinka, and then amazingly beat Rafa from three, one down in the fifth, never lost another game. So that was, I, you're right. I, 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 so don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's no way I'm just, I'm saying high, high to me. I see it as certainly highly unlikely and it would be a, it would be a stupendous achievement, but Serena, do you agree with me about Serena? Would you rate her chances higher than, than Rogers? Yeah, I would. Um, I think she's got a really tough draw though. I mean, you look, there's no easy matches from Sasnovich oh. oh. to potentially Bernarda Pera, Kerber, who's coming off of a win, Bencic, who loves to play on grass, Spitalina, Barty, and then Sabalenka. I mean, I don't think Sabalenka is getting to the final, but uh, she's never even made a quarterfinal. And, and it never works out that way, right? I mean, all these right. projected draws never work out that way. But, no, no, but Steve, Steve, also you left, you, you, you left out, those are all the people she's projected to play, but she might end up, might end up having to play Coco too, which is the one that I Just really want. Just going to say that. I would yeah. love to see that because Coco would go out there fearlessly and yet Serena's got her deep pride and, and I would, I would love to see that match. There's a potential right. fourth round. I'm looking at it now, a potential fourth, fourth round. Match. Exactly. And, and uh, Kerber would be in the third round. So you're, I totally agree, Steve. The draw is tough. On the other hand, you know, she, I, I, she hasn't had to deal with any recent injuries and she's, she's been healthy and she played some on the clay and she was okay in Paris. So I feel like she's a little better, slightly better prepared, but uh, it'd be fascinating to watch her. It's, I think it's her best chance. Uh, of all the opportunities to get 24, I think still to this day, she gets two games stepping on the court against most other players. Maybe not the Grand Slam champions, but everyone else, I'm giving Serena plus two games just for being Serena. She needs to take advantage of those two games. So one a set, right? You're up a break stepping on the court. That's what, in my opinion, I mean, I don't know if she feels that. I don't know if you feel that. But I still think she carries that aura. And so that's why, like, the loss to Rybakina was very disappointing, in my opinion. 
Um, and, and that's what she has to take advantage of because if it's straight up, I don't know. I don't know if she wins, but because she's Serena and in my opinion, she gets a game a set. She like, I still think she can beat everyone. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think the problem is that you, you refer to Rabakina is that she can lose to an awful lot of people these days. It's a wider range of players that on a given day can beat her. That's what makes it interesting. And so, but here's what I think, Steve. I look back on the, those four finals in 18 and 19. She didn't win a set in you know, Wimbledon in the Open. Great accomplishment to be in the Wimbledon and Open finals two years in a row. Gets to the semis of U.S. Open last year and wins the first set against Azarenka, loses the match. Great on her way to the semis this year in Australia. Naomi rises to the occasion and beats her. So I, it's no knock. It's a lot of very impressive performances. But I guess that's where my biggest doubts are, is if Serena gets to the semis or finals, it, it, does somebody pick her off again? Uh, that it, 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 Who is to say? Maybe she finally relaxes a little more. Because I do think she's obsessed by the history and, and really thinking about 24 and trying to keep it out of her mind, but not always succeeding. All right, hey. quick hitters, quick hitters. We're moving, we're moving on. This is not a quick hitter right now. <laughs> Sorry. We got to move on. I mean, there's nuance. <laughs> well, here's 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 a one on a lighter note. And I have no idea how you're gonna you guys are gonna answer. Steve Weissman, I'll start with you. Nick Kyrgios and Venus Williams in mixed doubles. I'm so excited. First of all, like I'm just excited to have Nick back. Um the, the match against Ugo and Bear is gonna be really entertaining. Uh Nick just brings excitement he brings something different um and he and he brings an audience and i am that audience and so uh so yeah the fact that he's playing with v is like next level like i hope they win the whole thing um i think it's so cool that a few years ago when asked you know who she'd want to play mixed doubles with she's like i think nick Kyrgios would be fun and now they're playing together um so i'm stoked about it I, i'm just really excited that that nick is is back playing because we haven't seen him since Australia. Steve Flink. I have nothing to add to that. I, I just put me down for ditto. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I would say that they do have a, a, a very decent chance to win the tournament because I think they're going to be competitive. And I think Nick is going to get, Venus is going to make Nick be serious. And he will be. I don't mm -hmm. think there's another mixed doubles male, correct me if I'm wrong, that is better than Kyrio. So that, just by that, He's right. going to be the best player on the court every yeah. time they step on the court. Right. I would say I, I would say a name that's not even in the draw. You would the only other person I'd say I think he's the best doubles player on the planet is Jack Sock, and he's not in the draw. Um, so yeah, with the, with that in the field, pure talent wise on the doubles area, Nick Kyrgios. So it, it'll be fun to watch. Um, again, quick hitters, PTPA, <laughs> the Professional Tennis Players Association. There was a lot going on this week. They had. The press conference, which I saw, um, two, it was in the middle of the night, like two nights ago. Um, I watched it. What are, what are your quick thoughts? We can keep it high level because there's a lot of things that are still, there's a lot of questions need to be answered. Yeah. I mean, I, this isn't quick and it's not, um, it's not uh, something to just throw out stuff about. I mean, I, I just read, I mean, Daniel Valverdu just wrote this whole thing on yep. Twitter and then, you know, guys responded to that. And right now, to me, it's just a lot of Twitter talk um, and, you know, something I, I believe that the players, they have the most power. Steve, and, and I want to get your opinion on this, Steve, because to me, their power is playing. 
So if you get everybody not to play, things will change. So if you, you know, but that, that's, that's really tough to do. If you don't, I don't see things changing because the tournaments and tennis has, you know, eight different people ruling the game. And so they don't have a commissioner. And I think a commissioner would be great for tennis. Um, but, you know, every other, like when I cover the NFL, there's an NFL PA and that union, you know, supports the players' interests and, and you know, uh, collective bargains, certain things that, that help the players. And so I, I think that would be helpful to tennis players. But ultimately, you know, they could decide if, if, if the top, but, but then, you know, Roger and Rafa aren't in agreement with, with Novak and the, the PTPA. And so you really can't get anything done. Um, it's tough. I, I don't have a definitive answer. No, I don't either. I do. I do think Novak's involvement is, is critical. I mean, if they didn't have someone of his stature, I'm granted it would help him immensely if he had at least one of the other two joining him. He's just, I think, a little bit bolder politically and more willing to put himself on the line. They're more traditionalists in their way, Roger and Rafa. So he hasn't been able to bring them along. But somehow I think that this is not going to end up, that it's going to end up with a, with a slightly reshaped ATP, uh, that they, they're going to somehow merge it. In some, and I, I, something's going to come out of it that way. I can't tell you how they're going to get there, but that's my guess, Steve, that something transpires in, in in that way, where there's a compromise, and but where Djokovic and and the other and Pospisil and the others feel like they're getting more what what they've been asking for, which is more more player power. The other thing, in my opinion, you you have to have the women involved. You yeah. can't just yeah. do it for the ATP. So yeah. you know it it carries. That's what makes tennis great is the fact that nine out of the ten highest paid female athletes on the planet are tennis players, and the fact yeah. that. Roger Federer, not this past year, but the year before that, was the highest paid athlete on the planet, is a tennis player. That's what makes our sport fantastic, that the highest paid athletes are tennis players. And that, especially on the women's side, like if you've got a daughter, get her into tennis because that, that's where you're getting paid, right? So, and, and, and the game to me is amazing at the highest level. Like there, there's a ton of women's matches that I'd rather watch than men's matches. Um, and this, you know. is, this is a little bit different topic and we're not going to address today, but, but when you say the, the money is so good up, it's, it's obviously extremely, extremely top level. We all know that a hundred in the world, 150 in the world, you are so, so good. 200 in the world, 300 in the world. You are so, so good. There's no money in that. Um, the money is good. It's very, very top level, which is, we all know. Um, it's also, it's also a meritocracy, right? So yeah. every year it starts and everybody's got the same chance. So be the best, right? Yeah, I mean, like Steve Flink is in the Hall of Fame for a reason. Like there's a lot of writers out there that are really good, but like he was better. So, you know, like just be the best. And decided on a court. This is there's no there's no subjectivity to number one in the world. Right. It's what you do out there. So if you're right. number one, you can make a lot of money. But briefly. Um, Briefly, David, just really quick. I think Steve's got a very good point. The women must be brought into this equation. And it came up, the issue came up last year with Djokovic. And he said they were going to be, they are, they were reaching out to the women, but it doesn't appear that much. He is, said he talked to Serena. He said he did talk right. to Serena. But, but it hasn't gone anywhere. And, and, and that, that's going to be critical too, if they really are going to move out on their own. 
two matches there. I got two more for you and we're going to end it up <laughs> real here, quick but, hitters real quick, <laughs> but two more, two, two matches that really just caught my eye. And they're both on the men's side here in the first round matches, Sebastian Corda, who I know we're all so high on plays Alex Dimonor in the first round. Also a match that is keeps staring me in the face. Struf versus Medvedev in the first round. Struf's been playing well. He's got a ton of talent. Those two matches are going to be fun to watch. I don't know who's going to win. I'm not here to pick, but those two matches for some reason seem really, uh, really stood out to me for some, I'm looking forward to watching both of them. I am too. I'm going, I'm going with Korda and Medvedev to win those matches. I, I think that uh, Demon Hour had a great week. He's cut, he's on a high, but I, I think Korda is going to, I, I somehow envision a five-set win for Korda. And Medvedev, I think, is going to be ready for Strupp this time, unlike their last meeting. I'm with you, Steve. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge Sebi fan. You know, he trained with, with Andre and Steffi over the summer, so he's, you know, yeah. Team Agassi. Um, and so, and, and his, his sister Nelly is tied for the lead in the LPGA event. Yeah. I don't know what the score is right now. They were tied through four <laughs> holes today. Uh, yeah. The Kardashians are amazing. That whole family, big fans, and 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 I, you know, I, I'm big on Sebi, so I would take him. And then I, another match I, that I'm really interested in is the Kvitova Sloan Stevens match. Oh, that'd be um, fun. Yeah, that 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 to me is the biggest first round match on either side. I mean, um, you've got two Grand Slam champions, you've got a two time Wimbledon champion, and then Sloan, who, in my opinion, can literally win any tournament she enters if she wants to. She's been yeah. struggling, but yeah, she's been playing better as of late. So it's been great to see her uh, playing to the level where we all know she can't play at. Last but not least, and we're going to let you go after this one. Uh, is it, are either of you, is there a chance, are either of you confident saying that the end of Wimbledon, I mean, any chance the big three, they're all not tied at 20 after this? I'm, I'm saying it's tied. I, I, I do yep. think. That Medvedev, Steve, made an interesting comment about that Djokovic was driven by history. And in his, he said it works in his favor and it works against him, the sense that, yeah, he wants it so badly and he tends to bring out his best under the high pressure circumstances. On the other, on the other hand, the high pressure is there because everybody's making him such a clear favorite. But in the end, I still think he will deal with it. I think his draw is so good all the way to the semis and then maybe sits a pass in the semis and Roger or Medvedev or whoever it is comes out of the other half of the draw. But I think he's got so much confidence having won the first two and priming for this and wanting to get to 20. I'm going with him. What about you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a chance because there's, you know, like anything else, there's always a chance. You never know what can happen out there. Uh, we didn't expect what happened at the U S open last year to happen. And, and just circling back to the PTPA thing quickly, that, that is, something that is hovering out there that could be a factor in at Wimbledon, at the Olympics, at the U S open. Again, I think a lot of that pressure and coming out and having to, to deal with all that boiled out onto the court when he hit that tennis ball in frustration. Yeah. Obviously he didn't mean to do that, but those are the things Djokovic, if he's healthy and, and mentally all there should win, but you never know with, with what could be going on off court. And as I always, like with Naomi Osaka, with anybody, you never know what anybody is truly going through at any point in their lives. Very true. And, um, All and, good. and, and that's a big factor. Yeah. Now I do. I just quick addition to that, David, just a quick thing. And Steve brings up the U S open and no doubt that was, a, that was a chilling, absolutely agonizing moment for Djokovic to smack that ball and hit the lines and find himself out of the tournament. 
And that was with a lot of this talk about the other players association swirling around him. Then I do think right now, I think he's going to keep it. I think he's going to really compartmentalize during this Wimbledon. He knows what happened to him in 16 when he lost to Sam query in the third round and with a chance to go for the grand slam that year. And I don't think he's going to allow that to happen again. And this time I think he will sort things out. That's my guess. Guys, uh, as always, this is a blast. Steve Flink, you know how much I enjoy doing these uh, these episodes with you. And Steve Weissman, what a treat. I appreciate it. I know we went longer, a little bit longer than usual, but uh, I appreciate you taking time and, and, and coming on and giving us your insight. And um, keep doing everything you're doing. We love watching you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, Wimbledon primetime starts tomorrow, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Myself, John Wertheim, Martina Navratilova on the desk. So we've got uh, a combined 20 Wimbledon titles between the three of us on the desk. There you go. Thank you, Martina. You're right there. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then obviously Lindsay and, and Jim and Paul and, and, and Ted and Alex and, all, and the whole crew will be uh, there, you know, doing it for two weeks. So looking forward to the championships. Well, thanks, listen, guys. be watching. And Steve, thanks a lot. It was Great pleasure to exchange views with you today. And I think we agreed on, on just about everything. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I can't disagree with, with the legend. So, <laughs> you know, whatever you say goes. And uh, it, it's, it's always a pleasure to, to be able to catch up and chat with you. And, and th thank you so much, literally, for, for having me on here and, uh, and, and give me a chance to chat. It was, it was great. Our pleasure. Talk soon, guys. All right. Take care.